1964 episode, we have to mention those poor, poor lions. South Melbourne try to recreate their famous foreign legion with a recruiting spree. Richmond's new coach has a tragic beginning to his coaching tenure at the club. Five teams fight tooth and nail again for four final spots. Collingwood with a new coach seems to be back with a vengeance. And Norm Smith has his last hurrah. All this and more coming up after the song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Alright, uh, welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes you on a deep dive into the history of the league. Uh, none of us have any qualifications, but we like to have fun by reliving the past and uh, better times. <laughs> we do. Uh, it's Kaz, Tim and Charlie here. Hi everybody. Hello. And we are with you for the 1964 season. Can you believe it? What it's a season it was. One for you guys to savour as well. I'm expecting I'll be running this show, show solo from here on out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So 60, Until 2021, possibly. So the 68th year. Yep. Okay. Sounds right. 67th or 68th. Yep, 68th, yeah. So we, we, we're halfway. Are More we? More than. We're past halfway. Okay. We must be. <laughs> yeah. My God. Okay. That is there. terrifying. Yeah. Um, so I'll enjoy this last episode with you guys yes. and then you know I'll just Yeah yeah enjoy this on your own. <laughs> oh, it's very familiar territory for me. Give us some history. Um, so 1964 um, we'll get stuck into some history straight away. Song wise mm-hmm. I couldn't split the Beatles because the Beatles were number 1 with different songs in Australia. Yes. In Australia for a total of 43 of the 52 weeks. How, yeah, how many different songs do we know of, uh, of that? But it was mainly it was like about your... 8 or 9 different songs. So, uh, so the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles. We'll play a <laughs> smattering of maybe some. Maybe I'll find, a, a, I'll find a medley to play yeah, over perfect. the top of this. So, what else was happening in '64? Well, uh, at the beginning of the year, on, the gen- on January 15th, we had the Major League Baseball. Uh, their executives voted to hold a free agent amateur draft, which is officially known as the first Major League Baseball player draft, which was held in New York City. Is that the first sports draft in any well, capacity I don't know. as well? Maybe, maybe. Um, and in the, in the same year, around the same time, the San Francisco Giants made champion outfielder Willie Mays the highest played player in baseball when they signed him to a new $105,000 per season contract. Wow. $105,000 in 1964. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, is it? some, that's what a basic rookie in yeah. Australian rules now, isn't now, it? Now, yeah. exactly. Um, on the 18th of January, plans to build the New York City World Trade Center were announced. Uh, and uh, at the end of January and start of Feb, we had the 1964 Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, yep. Austria. Yeah. Don't need to talk about um, Australia's medal tally at this stage. No, the Winter Olympics. The Winter no. Olympics, no. Um, on the 9th of Feb, the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for the very first time. Uh, seen by an estimated 73 million viewers. This became the uh, catalyst for the mid-60s British invasion of American pop music. On the 25th of Feb, we had Cassius Clay beating Sonny Liston 
at, in Miami Beach, Florida, and he, he was crowned the heavyweight champion of the world. Of course, Cassius Clay is. Uh, on the 9th of March, we had the first Ford Mustang ever manufactured. Which I'm surprised it was that. I thought it would have been earlier than that. On the 13th of April, uh, we had the 36th Academy Awards. Uh, Sidney Poitier became the first African-American to win an Academy Award in the category of Best Actor in a Leading Role in Lilies of the Field. Uh, on the 26th of April, uh, Tang- oh, God, this- yeah, Tanganyika and Zanzibar merged to become Tanzania. Okay. It was two countries, yeah. now one. Zanzibar's an island. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, on the 12th of June, Nelson Mandela and seven others were sentenced to life imprisonment in South Africa and sent to Robben Island. Island. Yeah. On the 27th of August, we had uh, Walt Disney's Mary Poppins world premiere, as you mentioned in last <laughs> year's episode. Yes. Um, it went on to become Disney's biggest moneymaker yeah. to the time. Oh, it was one. And it won five Academy Awards, including Best Actress. My, I reckon it was my favorite, one of my favourite movies as a kid. Really? Yeah. It is a ripper. Yeah. And uh, first Disney film to be nominated for Best Picture. There you go. There you go. On the 10th of December, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo. On the 11th of December, Che Guevara united, addressed the United Nations General Assembly and there was a bazooka attack launched on the headquarters of the UN in New York City. A bazooka attack? Yeah, unbelievable. How do you smuggle one of those? But seriously. Um, on the 16th of December, we had La Trobe University in Melbourne, founded ah. in 1964 okay. as well. Um, also in this, um, we placed... Eighth in the 1964 Olympic Games with six That's gold medals. Yeah. I'm not sure where the 64 games were, though. I didn't have that there. Mm. And Polo Prince won the Melbourne Cup. Great. Would you like to hear about some Australians that were born? Always. So we had, on the 15th of April, Lee Kernaghan. Or Kernaghan? Lee Kernaghan. Kernaghan, yeah. The country music Lee singer. Lee Kernaghan, the country yes. singer, yeah. yeah. On the 30th of April, Ian Healy, the cricket player and commentator. Yep. On the 28th of May, Jeff Fennick, the boxer. Okay. On the 11th of June, Carl Barron, the comedian. 14th of August, Jason Dunstall. Yeah. He kicked a few goals. On the 19th of August, Dermy, Dermot Brereton. Same year as Dunstall. Yeah. Five days apart. Nice. On the 5th of September, Frank Farina, the soccer player and uh, yes. Socceroos manager at uh, one stage. Yep. yep. Uh, 29th of October, Eddie Maguire. Uh, so from now on, he's everywhere, okay. I believe, from, from this time in 64. And the 9th of December, Larry Emder. Yep. Good, some good there TV go. hosts there as yeah, well. Weren't there? So, 1964 episode. Um, before we get to the preseason and league news, I've got something I was going to share. Um, I've got this card collection my father-in-law gave me. Stop. Footy photo album uh, of all the players from this, the 1964 season. Which you used to be able to collect, I think, through mobile. Yeah, mobile. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah, so, you know, there's all the stars of. They're know, proper, like, por- they're like portraits, aren't they? They're like. Yeah, um, so it's not action shots, they're portraits done. There's the Bulldog Murray It looks yeah. like, um, like, like film stars. Almost. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, very much like that. Look at Teddy. Teddy That's, Whitten. It's a full collection, Tim, too. Uh, I think there might be some missing at the back. Oh, okay. You've got to get, um, you've got to put some photos of, of this up on Instagram. Mm. Ditterich, look how big his head is. Is that, yeah. And don't you think, Daryl Baldock, he's always looked old. Yeah, yeah. 
because it's good that's for amazing. season. And that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Um, so some league news as well. The league introduced a news a, a rule where the club runner could only pass on messages to the captain or vice captain or appointed leader in their absence during a game. Richmond and Footscray opposed this rule. Uh, the rule was rescinded before round eight as all clubs were breaking the rule during matches. Um, as, <laughs> as a re- if you can't beat them, join them sort of stuff. As a result, all um, the coaches were able to address players during the quarter time break. Yeah. Uh, and there'll be a four-minute break after the first quarter and the siren will sound after three minutes to warn the coaches to leave. Um, AFL, VFL... Sorry, all VFL umpires will wear dressing gowns if required during quarter-time and three-quarter-time breaks ah. just to stay warm. Uh, it was the first season where VFL goal and behind posts were padded to prevent player injuries. Really? Yeah. And the father-son rule was extended from just players with 50 games experience to cover president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, assistant secretary, coach, or a member of the committee with 10 years service. So off-field. Yeah. So if you even never played a game, but you're, you're son, I, that's interesting. I wonder who led that rule. Yeah, there, there must have been a player, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Kaz, shall we get to the first team, which is Fitzroy? Okay, Fitzroy... Absolutely no wins, 18 losses, and a percentage of 59.7. Yeah, so a better percentage than last season, uh, but less wins than last season. So Probably a win. That, yeah, wouldn't you? So that's so one win last year, yep. none this year. Yep. Great times. Mm. Uh, so, again, yeah, exactly. Again, captain coached by uh, Bulldog Murray this year. Um what happened? All right. So some debutants first. Ralph Rogerson, uh, Alan Quaif, and Jebediah's Kevin Mitchell. Oh, really? Played in, uh, in, in 64, yep. Good on him. Um, this was a very barren season, though, with no win to report on. I'll talk a little bit about some things. Um, round seven was the closest they came to a win. <laughs> it was a one-point loss to Carlton at Princess Park. Lions were 10 points in front at three-quarter time, but couldn't withstand a determined onslaught by the Blues in the last quarter. Ralph Rogerson uh, had a shot after the siren to win the game, but it missed. Didn't make the distance. Uh, round 10 and In round 10, they had nine different goal scorers and kicked 13 goals, but went down to the Doggies, despite leading by 31 points at three-quarter time. You would have thought that's the game. Yeah. Uh, around 17, they again came within a point against North Melbourne. Eight goals to two after half-time was not enough to get them the win. Um, so because Kevin Murray was away for state duties in 63 when they won, his coaching record is zero wins, 35 losses at the end of this season. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, here's some positives, though. Uh, debutant Ralph Rogerson kicked goals in 16 of 18 games. Uh one of their players, John Newman, would play over 100 games, kicked off his career this year. Uh, Kevin Murray and Bob Henderson both represented Victoria with Murray the captain of Victoria. Yep. Uh, and Kevin Murray won his seventh best and fairest, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he did. Um, like, that's not a guess anymore. No. Following the season, a reform group took control of the club, led by Les Phelan, uh, hoping to bring the lines of old back to life. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough season. Yeah, well, you've got to get some sort of heartbeat back down there. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, best and fairest was Kevin Murray. And uh, um, I've got we, Roger Rogerson. Oh, Roger Rogerson. Okay. Maybe not Ralph. As their lead goal kicker with 27. That's an even better name, Roger Rogerson. Yeah, Rice. Yeah. 11th place, South Melbourne, with two lovely wins, 16 losses, and a percentage of 68%. 
Vasquez. <laughs> um, while you're finding that info, Charlie, a new brick grandstand replaced the old one that burned down the previous season? Yes. Brick grandstand that still I believe stands. still stands, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, we've got, uh, again, coached by Noel McMahon in his third season. Again, captained by Bobby Skilton. Yes. I mean, of course. Of course. Mm. Uh, so the Swans launched a massive recruiting drive in the off-season. Um, I guess trying to emulate the uh, Archie Crofts and yeah, the Foreign yeah, Legion. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they got East Perth... What, what supermarket <laughs> mogul do they have helping them out now? Um, they got East Perth champion Graham John, uh, Jeff Bray, Keith Baskin, Herbie Matthews Jr., Terry Tate, Fred Way, and finally they got Max Papley, uh, who oh, was yes, cleared who was from Moorabbin, yep. being the grandfather of Tom Papley. Uh, the club was very buoyant about their prospects, especially with all this. Now, you know, um, lots of new players were going to turn this thing around. Crashed to earth pretty quickly with a, around one loss of four goals to Hawthorne. They won in round two over Fitzroy, 26 points, with Bob Skilton kicking six. Wow. The Lions did lead at three-quarter time. How do, do How do you kick six out of the midfield? Yeah. It's unbelievable. But the Swans, eight goals to four in the first quarter, final quarter, won them the game. Skilton kicked six in that, and Papley kicked five, so, so Papley definitely a, a good pick-up. Round 10 was a bit of a low point. They scored just one goal against Geelong. Uh, scored by Ian Randall, or Randall, who had come on in the third quarter as a sub in the final quarter. It was his only game and his only goal. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, however, John Rantel, that you spoke about last episode, was very impressive in this game. Ah. They'd lose their next 10 games, having to wait again till they played Fitzroy, which was round 13, uh, who they trounced by 73 points. Papley and Skilton were again dominant players. Um, the committee reported at the end of the season and said, uh, as history reveals, the meagre success attained in 63 and 64 um, was the reason for this lack of success. Where did the club fail? The report suggests the reasons were many and varied, but the committee vowed to work hard to rectify weaknesses. <laughs> I love that. Many and varied. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, their only two wins were against Fitzroy. Yeah, okay, so... Yeah, it's like those days of St Kilda not winning... Like, the early days where... Yeah, Carlton's only wins only were ever against St Kilda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, well, um, we've got... Uh, who do you reckon the best and fairest was? Oh, Skilton. Skilton. Yes, of course it was. Another one. And who do you think the uh, league goal kicker oh. was? If not Skilton, Papley maybe? If not Skilton, it was Papley with uh, 25. So they'd be very happy that they, they've got the clearance through for him. Going up one place to 10th, Carlton with five wins, one draw and 12 losses. Percentage of 90.3. Yes, so uh, coached again by uh, Kenny Hans in his final year as coach. Oh. Um, and captained by Serge, Serge Silvani this year, taking over from John Nichols. Yep. Um, so two debutants to mention. One's Jim Playdell, and the other is uh, Jim Frosty Miller. Uh, now, he had a, a pretty quiet career with Carlton, mm. but would go on to be an absolute VFA champion, the, uh, the leading goal kicker. Award in the VFA slash VFL is called the Frosty Miller Medal. Oh, okay. Um, because he, uh, with Dandenong, he dominated, kicked 106 goals in 1969. Um, he was involved in a few premiership teams and just amassed a huge. Here we go. Um, he kicked 885 goals at an average of 4.8 a game. Jeez. So he's an absolute legend of the VFA. Didn't cut it with the VFL, but this is the year he did join the VFL. Briefly. Round one, they played North Melbourne at Princess Park. 
North began well and were too fast for Carlton until half-time. And they led by four goals after two quarters. But Carlton were being held in the ruck and only the brilliant play of Rover McMaster-Smith enabled them to break clear of the packs. The Blues closed up the game in the second half after reducing the leeway to nine points at three-quarter time, took charge in the air and gradually forged ahead for a hard-fought win. Uh, then they lost five in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Round seven, the Lions were ten points in front at three-quarter time and were unable to withstand this comeback like we talked about. Carlton's victory was due to their steadiness in the last quarter and their sound defence, which was too strong for the Lions' uh, chancy forward line. Round eight, after an even first quarter against South Melbourne, Carlton took control of the match at Lakeside Oval to run out 25-point winners. Wes Lofts provided a reliable marking target and kicked five goals. Round nine, Carlton were on top early against Richmond, but the Tigers fought back well to lead at three-quarter time uh, and expected to go on to win. However, the Blues came back in the last quarter to win by a close three-point margin. The deciding factor in the critical last term was uh, John Nichols striking his best form of the season in the ruck. Round 16, sitting 10th on the ladder, Carlton faced Collingwood at Princes Park. And after a run of six successive losses, the Blues were at long odds, but lifted and fought out a brave draw. The rucks of the Blues gave them the first use of the ball. And in fact, only Collingwood's accurate kicking saved them from defeat. Carlton champion ruckman John Nichols was back in top form again. His strong ruck play was a contributing factor in the Blues' good showing against Collingwood. And round 18, Carlton bounced off the blocks against Fitzroy to be six goals in front at quarter time and then increased its margin at every break. Uh, and then following the end of the season, there was a boardroom coup. Hey, another one. Yep. And a uh, new committee came in with legend George Harris taking over as president. Oh, yeah. Okay. Who will uh, make sweeping changes starting, now, at, starting at the top. Yeah. Interesting that we know. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Obviously, Serge is a legend, but to... Take uh, the captaincy away from John Nichols when he's still like in his prime. Yeah, that's and an after move, one isn't it? year, seems very odd, doesn't it? I wonder why. Yeah, maybe he didn't. Changes. Maybe he didn't want it, or maybe yeah, yeah. it wasn't wasn't. You know, some people aren't aren't great. No, you're right. Like good on field leaders, but not sort of on with the other stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Strange. So, who do we think was best and fairest in '64? John Nichols. Gordon Collis. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think he won the Brownlow also. Well, <laughs> yes. Spoilers. There was a... There, well, and there was one other thing to me that apparently in, in round six he was reported, but the charge Ooh. wasn't upheld. Okay. So it could have been very interesting there. <laughs> uh, and leading goal kicker was the big Nank, Ian Nankervis. Okay. Uh, with, eight, with 18. Ugh. Poultry. Ugh. And in the poultry ninth, hey, <laughs> ninth man, it's uh, Richmond with six wins, twelve losses. Where <laughs> they belong? Eighty-four point percent. So Richmond this year, ta- someone's taken over the coaching job. Yep. The great man, mm. Len Smith, and uh, captained by Neville Crow again. Yeah. Um, okay, so debutants. We've got Kevin Smith, the director, who I think played for the Doggies a few seasons oh, ago. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, he took some time off between the Doggies and Richmond He's been to reincarnated again. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony Jewell, future Richmond captain. Uh, Roger Richardson, Frank Dimitina, Don Davenport and Jeff Strang all making their debut. So Frank Dimitina being Paul Dimitina's father. And Strang as in Bill Strang? As the Strang brothers, I, I believe so. And Doug Strang, right? Yeah. Maybe. I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, so Len Smith was convinced to leave his coaching position at Coburg and come across to Richmond. Uh, 
And in later now, years... Now, am I right in, t- in remembering that that was where Norman Len played as young guys, Coburg? Good question. I could be... I mean, I read the, bo- I read the Red Fox book quite a while ago, so I'm... I'm uh, I have it with me. Ah, good. excellent. <laughs> we'll check um, in. I can't remember. Sure. I'll check in. Yeah. Um, so, years later when Graham Richmond, secretary, was labelled... Um, I was asked, he said that this was the most important appointment or pivotal position in Richmond's rise back to the top in appointing Len Smith. Uh, when he was finally officially appointed, Len said, we must have the mutual respect and feeling and friendship, unselfishness and hard work. It is a challenge to each Richmond player in his mind and body for a club to rise up the ladder. I won't promise results, but I do promise your members fit players who will play with a plan and who will improve. So I quite like how realistic he's being. Yeah. Well, I think he always was, wasn't he? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, in a different way to Norm. Yeah. However, on the eve of round one, Len Smith, age 52, suffered a heart, atta- a heart attack and Another collapsed. One. Yep. Unbeknownst to many, he'd had a minor one during the final training session on the Thursday, but didn't let anyone know. Um, so when he suffered this one, he was rushed to Sacred Heart in Moreland and told to rest. He had this, told to rest for six weeks. The players were to meet at Smith's house in Essendon that night. So a special meeting at the club's executive committee and selection committee were held where Dick Harris was appointed the coach in Smith's absence. There you go. I just checked on that. Sorry, I was wrong. It was Northcote where okay. they spent a yep. lot of time as youngsters. It was a Jeff strain. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, some of Doug, but uh, only only managed 17 senior games. Okay. Good. Uh, round That's one. Next year. Without their new coach, they couldn't match the doggies, and unfortunately, went down. Uh, it wouldn't be until round three where they had their first win of the season at Lakeside against South Melbourne, and it was the kind of win that Len Smith would have been happy with, coming from almost four goals back at half time to win by eight points, and keeping the Swans goalless in the last quarter. They backed this up with a big win over the, the Lions. The Tigers kicked seven goals, nine to nothing in the first quarter to win by 64 Jeez. points. Yeah, that's how, that's how poor the Lions are. Yeah. In round five... Sorry, Kaz. Oh, yeah, and Strang went on to play uh, in the flag sides later on. Okay. <laughs> After only... Did you say he only had 17 games? I, I, meant, I, I sort of didn't finish my sentence. <laughs> okay. Can I edit that out? Can we go back and change that? <laughs> uh, it's back. It's back, baby. <laughs> Um, round five, they made it three in a row with a win over St Kilda. Paddy Gwinane leading the goal kicking there. Uh, and round seven was a return match for Len Smith back in charge uh, for their game against Hawthorne, but unfortunately they couldn't get the win. Uh, Len would have to wait until round 12 for her, his first win as coach, which was a win over the Doggies by 22 at Punt Road Oval. Uh, they finished the season with back-to-back wins over South by 65 and Fitzroy by 55 in round 14 and 16 for their final two wins of the season. Round 15 was especially sweet because it was a win over the Lions, his former team, who only managed two goals for that game. Yeah. Um, in round 18, Richmond played its last game and last VFL match at Punt Road Oval. Yes. But it was not known at the time no. that it was going to happen. Now, I, I think you mentioned something about this in the 63 episode, but it was, yeah, the end of this year that it, it actually happened. Yeah. 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 So they didn't, yeah, they didn't know because it all happened up post-season. Yes, correct. So there was no real celebration of the end of Punt Road. Yeah, so I think it was St Kilda who played their last game that we talked they about. They knew, yes. Well, on no, the same... they, did, they didn't know, but because I think they played them at Junction but then didn't play them at Punt Road because of the inaccurate fix, the, the fixture. Like each team, you don't play a home and away against every team. No, but on this, no, no, on the same day, obviously on the last Saturday, St Kilda played its last game oh, yeah, sorry, at yes. the Junction. Yes, they yes. did. And they knew that. Yes, that was, they did That was know. a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's think the best and fairest. Oh, who do you think it was? Uh, who do you think? 
<laughs> Swift, Fred Swift. Naz captain, Neville Crow. Okay, again. Back uh, to back. Again, yeah, back to back. And lead goal kicker. Paddy Paddy Gwinnane? Roger Dean. Oh, Roger 23. Dean, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. North, <laughs> North Melbourne, eight wins, ten losses in eighth place. Um, 87.2%, Charlie. Yes, so North again, coached by Alan Killigrew and captained by Alan Aylett. And Noel Teasdale. Yeah. We'll hear a bit more yep. about this. Uh. Debutants were Dick Hello and <laughs> Arthur Karanikolas. Hello is in H E W L O. H A W L O. Ah, still. Maybe It still works. Dick Hollow or Dick Hello? Hello, Hello. This was a season where Ron Joseph was appointed full time assistant secretary. And we'll get to him a lot more in the next few seasons, especially in the 70s. Yeah. Round three was their first win, which was a superb defeat of Essendon at Windy Hill. The first time they'd won there since 59. Ibrahim and Dugdale with five goals each. They started a mini winning streak of four games, beating the highly fancied Hawks by 31 at Arden Street, the Doggies by 47, and then the Lions by 17 as well. Uh, but in round seven, wanting to make it five in a row, things went horribly wrong against Collingwood. We'll hear more about that later. Round nine, they held the Swans scoreless in the opening quarter and ran out easy winners by four goals. Uh, at the end of the round 10 match between Geelong and North Melbourne at Cardinia Park, uh, North Melbourne coach Alan Killigrew was king hit in the players' race yeah. by an official. Um, a, brew, a, a brief brawl ensued uh, with Killigrew emerging with his face covered in blood. The VFL initiates an inquiry into the matter involving the examination of 20 different witnesses. Um, and then the VFL announced there were no charges to be laid against Ge- Geelong's Jeff Rosenau. Yeah. And we'll get, a bit, we'll get more to this in, when we talk about Geelong. So we find out why it started. Yeah, yeah. It was well. Geelong won that game by two points. Um, yeah, so it was it was a tempest there. Yeah, and supposedly Killigrew went into the wrong change rooms and oh, okay. a bit of push and shove, and a heap of players became involved as well. Um, and there's, no, there's a nice little poem that goes with it that I found. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, round eleven, they had another come from behind win, holding the Tigers goalless in the final quarter as they kicked four to win by seventeen. Then in round 12, North and Carlton fought out a real thriller at North Melbourne, which was won by the home side, the Kangaroos, 15 minutes before the end when Burley Ruckman Bob Pascoe socked the ball off the ground through for a point. For the last quarter of an hour, the scores were tied. Uh, back pocket Ken Dean saved repeatedly on the line of defence, uh, while Don Palmer, beaten for the first time in the centre by Ian Collins, was a damaging player after half-time. After 12, goals, after 12 games, the Roos were 7-5 and the finals were a real chance. However, in round 13, yes. North Melbourne Rover and professional dentist... Yeah, I didn't realise that either. Alan Aylett broke his left arm and had to retire immediately as, he was, as they were smashed by the Demons. But and obviously he chose to retire because you, know, you, yeah. you, know, you can't be a professional dentist with a broken arm. I, no. I'm assuming like he, yeah. re- he, he realised that you can get injured playing yes. PFL. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, I'm, I'm guessing that's why Noltesdale took, took over. over. Yeah. yeah. Oh uh, the only other win was round 17, a lucky one-point win over the Lions. At the end of the season, the club made the decision to move their headquarters from Arden Street to Coburg City Oval. Ah. And they will also have a new ground for next season. Amazing. It's all happening. It is. So, um, uh, who do you reckon we had as best and fairest in 64? Let's go Teasdale. Yes, it yeah, was yeah. Teasdale. Again. And Dugdale for the... And Dugdale again. Yes. Uh, that's his... One, two, three, four, fifth year in a row as their lead goal kicker with 46. Seventh place, Footscray, nine wins, nine losses. And a percentage of 88.1. Expo 88 together. No one oh, 88, yeah, yeah. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> a really obscure reference there, guys. <laughs> I enjoyed it. There was, it was things good. about that that were not that don't hold up. By the way. Okay. I, I we'll get to that later. Really? We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll off. talk about that in ADA? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Captain Coach again by Mr. Football Teddy Whitten, of course. Excellent. We've got some debutantes. We've got Gary Dark, Sam Magill, Algie Vosilatis, and Barry Beattie. Uh, and also uh, a player by the name of Noel Fincher. And we have his, uh, his grandson here to have a, a quick talk about Noel. Wow. Uh, so, Raf, friend of the show, welcome. Uh, tell us a bit about Noel. Uh, my pop, he played uh, back. He played a couple seasons for North Melbourne and also for the Bulldogs. Um, he retired after he had my dad. Um, he loved footy. Um, he met, he, um, he always played it as a kid. Yep. Yeah, but it wasn't as big of a thing as it was now. Yep. Uh, he won one night grand final. He played with Mr. Footy or Ted Whitten. Teddy Whitten, yep. And um, he he played back, so um, yeah. And your family are North Melbourne supporters. Yes. Which seems strange when he played five seasons at Footscray. Why are you not Footscray supporters? Um, well, my dad's always gone for North Melbourne. I th- there's a reason behind it. It's because um, so my pop he enjoyed so Noel, playing. Noel Fincher, yeah. Yeah, he enjoyed playing for Northmore because North were a nicer club. Okay. So we sort of, Bulldogs didn't treat him right and then he got a contract for North. Yep. And then... Yeah, so he transferred to North in 1969. Played two seasons there. Only 15 games for North Melbourne, but that's quite interesting that the lasting memory is negative ones for the Bulldogs and because of that, your family has ever since been North Melbourne supporters. Yeah, so... My whole family's, except my mum, goes for North. There you go. Yeah, and my dad, he got drafted to the Footscray, to Footscray, because of my pop, yep. father-son rule. Yep. Yeah, but... He didn't play any games. Yeah, he didn't play any games. Great. Anything else to add? Uh, no. Thank no. you for having me. Thanks for sharing, Raf. Uh, so the opening game was a five-goal win against the Tigers with Ray Baxter kicking three. Round four was win number two, which was against Carlton. Witten dominated this game as the Dogs added eight goals, two in the second quarter to take control. George Bissett losing, leading the way against the Blues with four, and Schultz dominating the ruck. Round six, the Doggies kicked the same number of goals as the Swans, but 13 more behinds, which was their final margin. Ah. Witten kicked three of those goals. Round 10 was a scare from the Lions, who jumped them early. They kicked 10-3 in the third and led by over five goals at three-quarter time. Fitzroy fought hard to earn a win, but the Doggies kicked six goals, four to earn an eight-point win, thanks largely again to John Schultz, who must be must be in line for best and fairest this year, I reckon. <laughs> Round 11 against the Hawks produced a three-goal, three-ten-goal loss, so they kicked three goals, three. It was a ten-goal loss, their lowest ever score to the point in time. Yeah. Round 13, another come-from-behind win, this time against St Kilda, who they bested by five points in a close game. The Doggies finished off the season well, winning their last four games against Carlton North, then South, but the big morale booster was their final round win over the Demons. Oh, no. Bulldogs champion Teddy Whitten was on the best form of the day as they dominated the game from start to end. The Demons kicked four goals in total. The Doggies finished the season in style with a 40-point win over the eventual Premier. Oh, yeah, that's us. Yes, that's you. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, how, did, how did Schultz go? Did he win the best and fairest? Schultz did win the best and fairest. Well picked. <laughs> the uh, 1960 Brownlow medalist there. Yes, just absolutely. Just finding some of his great form again. 
and the uh, lead goal kicker was shared between Bissett and Witten, yeah. each kicking 24. Right. There yeah. we go. Nice. And sixth place, St Kilda, 10th. Um, Excuse me, 10 wins, 8 losses, and percentage of 118.4. So the Saints, they're dropping out of the dropping out of the finals. Uh, again, coached by Alan Jeans and captained by Daryl Baldock. Yeah, so they had a big season last year. Yes. Uh, and we know that they made finals but couldn't quite do it this year. We've got some debutantes for them. We've got Brian Sirakowski and comedian Dave Hughes. Husey. Ah, oh, good on him. Playing for the Saints. Husey does footy. Yeah. Uh, now, before the start of the season, St Kilda came to an arrangement with the city of Moorabbin yes. uh, that it would move its playing and administrative base from the Junction Oval to Moorabbin for the start of the 65 season. So the third club that we've talked about this year doing big changes. Yes, so they became the first club to voluntarily move from its traditional ah, okay, ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, St Kilda was motivated by a desire to manage and operate its own venue including a licensed social club rather than remain in the current situation where they had to pay the secular cricket club yeah, large which amounts of money. It was the, which was the arrangement that most yeah. clubs were in from the beginning yeah. of the, yeah, and the VFL. And they asked for many updates to the ground and St Kilda Cricket Club had refused and not done it. Uh, one of the stipulations in the club was that it be named the St Kilda Moorabbin Football Club. Yep. But a long forgotten rule prevented this from happening. A group of members sought an injunction to prevent the move, and in May the Supreme Court allowed the move, provided there was a vote among the club's members, which ultimately saw a 75% majority in favour of the move. Ah, oh, okay. Um, and this had big, big ramifications for the VFA, where local club Moorabbin were expelled from the competition for supporting the Saints and the council in their moves. So the Moorabbin was expelled from the VFA for yeah, supporting and, and St Kilda. Folded. And that's why oh, Max look. Papley was able to get to South Melbourne Because well. Moorabbin wasn't there anymore. Exactly. Oh. Wow. Huge. Uh, yeah. So round two was the Saints' first win of the year. Uh, Bernie Payne leading from the front with four goals as the Saints beat the Dogs by 53. Uh, although the team was very inaccurate, kicking 12 behinds in the third term, Bulldog finished with two goals, eight himself. I'd love to hear from someone from that expelled. Rabin, yeah. Yeah, I want to talk to the guy who put the injunction in place. Mm. Yeah. Uh, round four against the Demons, the Saints' side led by teenagers Carl Ditterich and Ian Cooper... Uh, were able to against the Demons so the side was led by those two players uh, they went in half time 16 points up but the Demons got to within 5 points early in the last quarter but the Saints steadied to win by 26 points uh, the inaccuracy started to really haunt them losing to the Tigers by 7 after kicking 8 goals 19 so what is it they don't have a proper forward or something to go um, to or just they got the hips which they like like they do every now and then yep. every side goes through it um Round seven, Alan Jeans, ever the innovator, used a walkie-talkie to communicate with the runner on the field. Um, now, this game... Really? Runs. A walkie-talkie? Yep. <laughs> now, the round the seven, the Saints took on Geelong down in Geelong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ball was in their forward pocket for most of the game. Also, most of the last quarter, but they couldn't get the breakthrough goal and they ended up losing by three points. Oh. Round eight, they beat the Rouge with Bulldog and Stewart back in their sparkling best form, but Bulldog again had the yips in front of goal, kicking two goals from nine attempts. Oh, no. Four points and three out of bounds on the full. Round 10, in what was officially, the, I'm going to say, the last Lakeside pennant match. Yeah, well, yeah, it has to be, doesn't yeah, it? because, well, the oh, Saints right. aren't at the lake anymore. Oh, no. Um, the Saints were able to beat the Swans Taking over in the second half Bernie Payne kicked six goals uh, Bullock and Ross Smith with three each 
The official tally for the Lakeside pennant is 15 to the Saints and 30 for the Swans. Um, and interestingly for the Saints, they won the first four and the last four, but not many in between. Round 12, Ruckman Brian Minnett made his debut in spectacular fashion, thumping the ball almost 30 metres from the opening bounce, although the Saints went down to the Bombers in this match. Ah. Um, they beat the Hawks, but a loss to Collingwood and Essendon dinted their finals aspirations. They were able to beat the Blues and Tigers heading into the end of the season. And then on the 22nd of August, 1964, round 18, St Kilda played its final yeah. match at Junction Oval in an emotional game against the finals-bound Cats. Um, and this, I should say this is the last, I think it was their last game as the home side. Yes. Um, so in that game, led by Carl Ditterich, Alan Morrow and Jim Wallace, the Saints won by two goals, which cost the Cats the double chance. Oh. They were stiff to miss finals, losing three games by under a goal, but it was also revealed at season's end that Baldock had played the entire season with a badly injured left hand. So there you go. So when he was at his best, he was real. Like, yeah, it's incredible when you hear those stories about those guys who um, can play that well with all those injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Which he did. I'm happy to say Hawthorne in fifth place, 13 wins, five losses, percentage 121. The Hawks, there you go. Yeah, so this year, uh, coached by Graham Arthur, taking over from uh, Jack Kennedy, as we said, who had to leave to go go teach mm. somewhere else, and uh, captained again by Graham Arthur. So right, some, some debutants. We've got Phil Garwood, Bob Vag, Mike Butcher, and John Newnham. Not Newman, Newnham. Newnham. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, as you said, Graham Arthur was captain coach, the first captain coach Hawthorne had, had since 1949. Okay. Um, and he started well with John Peck kicking eight in the big win over South in round one. Uh, they won two more games over Carlton and St Kilda before a five-goal loss to eighth-place North Melbourne upset the momentum as the Hawks struggled until after the mid-season break to get back on an extended winning run. In round five, they comfortably beat Fitzroy before losing to Melbourne at the MCG in round six by just three points. Wins over Richmond by 31, Essendon by 14, were followed by thumping in round nine by the topside Geelong. Ouch. Uh, the Hawks' score of three goals, 8-26, was the club's lowest in 11 years. The side responded well, though, beating third-place Collingwood at Victoria Park by nine points, with the Sporting Globe saying that the Hawks' tenacity and speed gained their winning break in the first term when they scored six goals to two to Collingwood's... So six goals, two to Collingwood's one goal, two. And that began a streak of four wins. In round 11, they, the Hawks beat Footscray to the tune of 10 goals. Uh, and we talked about this earlier. It was the Doggies' lowest ever score to that point. Yeah. John Peck easily outscored them himself with seven. After another strong win over South Melbourne by 52, this was followed in round 13 by a 16-point win over Carlton in a match where neither side scored a goal in the last quarter. This left the Hawks in second place but they then lost to seventh place St Kilda by five goals before narrow wins over North Melbourne and Fitzroy had them back vying for a top spot on the ladder. Round 17 at Glen Ferry Oval against Geelong proved to be the heartbreaker. Sorry, not against Geelong, against Melbourne. The Hawks lost to Melbourne by less than a kick, and we'll talk about that game when we get to Melbourne. Um, and the Hawks have been unbeaten at Glen Ferry this season as well until this game. Oh, really? They were 16 points up at three-quarter time and, and lost. Had this result been reversed and the other results may, remained the same, it would have seen Hawthorne first and Melbourne fifth and out of finals. That's Unbelievable. How, so how so similar to last year as well. Yeah. yeah. So, best and fairest in goal kickers, Charlie? Probably John Peck would be the goal kicker. John Peck was the goal kicker with 68. 
best and fairest and law again, second year in a row. Mm. Very consistent there for them. Mm. Uh, which gets us to a bit of night fever, Charlie. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Come and tell us about the Golden Fleece Premiership. The Golden, Golden Fleece, I certainly do. <laughs> so, the Golden Fleece Night Premiership. So, that's the first naming right sponsor, interestingly oh. enough, um, which is the Australian Petroleum Company, the Golden Fleece. Uh, which isn't around anymore? No. no. I'm assuming not. Um, they upped the prize money um, from £500 to £1,400 for the winning team and from £250 to £650 for the runner-up. Wow. Uh, they were all provided by the Golden Fleece with the VFL's contribution remaining unchanged. So... That's got to... Uh, like you, if you're not in the finals, you want to win this. Absolutely you do. So we've got uh, all the teams who didn't make finals again in here. Uh, first game on the 27th of August, play, uh, Richmond played St Kilda. Richmond came out strong, but then uh, St Kilda took them after half time and ran out winners 12-12-84 to Richmond's 9-7-61. Uh, next game was between Carlton and Fitzroy and Carlton got off to a lead and kept it and just kept on widening it as well uh, with final, the final score being 17-10-112 to 11-6-72. South Melbourne and Footscray's game, the next game, was an up and down affair. Footscray took the lead by a point at quarter time, but then South took charge uh, with Footscray coming back in the last quarter to kick seven goals in the last quarter to South Melbourne's one to come out winners 15-15-105 to 11-6-72. And then the final game between North Melbourne and Hawthorne. Hawthorne, you would think, would win, and they did quite convincingly. Well, not not overly convincingly, but they were in the lead the whole time. Final score was 10-13-73 to 7-13-55. So the semi-finals had St Kilda, Carlton, Footscray and Hawthorne. Uh, St Kilda beat Carlton quite convincingly. 6-10, no sorry, not convincingly at all. It was six, it was by a point. 6-10-46 to 5-15-45. They were in the lead the whole way, but uh, Carlton were just errant in front of goal, kicking uh, 15 points as we said. Uh, then the Footscray Hawthorne game was convincing. <laughs> uh, Footscray running out winners 8 12 60 to 4 10 34. So the grand final for the Golden Fleece Cup, uh, winning 1,400 pounds between St Kilda and Footscray. St Kilda came out well, then Footscray took charge, uh, then St Kilda came back in the third. But then Footscray came over the top again and the final score very close. 11-7-73 to St Kilda to Footscray's 11-12-78. Which probably tells us there was a bit of a wind each quarter that was benefiting whichever yeah, team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> was it was very close the whole way through. Only one one goal sort of in it each, each quarter, but it just kept flipping around. Just back-to-back flags there for the doggies. Yes. So... Uh, we've got the leading goal kicker of the series being Carlton's Serge Silvani and Hawthorne's John Peck, actually. Nine goals each. Um, and then uh, the series totaled 128,360 spectators, which is 30,000 more than last, ah. last year's crowds. Very impressive. That's good for Golden Fleece. 
Absolutely. Plenty of people out there buying petroleum. <laughs> I wonder how that compares to oh. the, the amount of money that was won by the VF, actual VFL Premier. Mm, and Coles goals. Yes. Of course. <laughs> Um, in fourth place, Geelong with 13 wins, four losses, one draw, and 127.4%. So Geelong, again coached by Bobby Davis and captained by uh, Fearless Fred. Fearless Fred Waller. Fearless Fred Waller, yes. Uh, so some debutants we've got uh, Kevin Kirkpatrick, uh, Dennis Marshall from Western Australia. There's a bit of clearance ring with him as well. Oh. Uh, his original club, Claremont, um, had suggested that there was some payments going on behind the scenes. Oh. And so that was investigated before he could play. Um, and also another big name, John Sammy Newman. Kaz, tell us a bit about him. John Sammy Newman, hailing from Geelong Grammar, uh, was heir apparent to Polly Farmer. And he was a magnificent mark and a good team player. Uh, from the start, he had a big leap with loads of natural ability and he suffered a severe setback when he was seriously injured in the 1967 first semi. Um, he had part of a kidney removed. Um, no, I, th- I thought every... It sounds like something everybody would know, but I did not know that. <laughs> um, and came back so strongly that he won the club best and fairest the next year. Later in his career, he was troubled by ankle injuries. Um, he still a, was a handy player at centre-half forward as he battled on despite three ankle operations, Achilles problems and um, assorted other difficulties to reach his 300 games. A little bit about John Sammy Newman. All right, so round one, Polly Farm was at odds with umpire Brophy early in this game, but this didn't stop him from tearing Melbourne apart. <laughs> in one passage of play in the final quarter, he fell face down and the ball was just in front of him. He pulled his arms free and was able to get to the ball and pass it to Wayne Kloster with those big hands of his. Yeah, just whack it out. Kicking the goals. Cats, Cats beat the Ds by 13 points there. Um, they had a very good start to the season, winning only, uh, losing only one of their first... 12, I, th- I believe. Oh, wow. Um, in round six, the Tigers threatened early to take the game from the Cats, but a six-goal-to-none second quarter stamped their authority. Uh, this was also the first full game played by Sam Newman. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Round seven... Well, it would be hard for him to break into that team with Polly Farmer. Farmer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Round seven, it was a close game with the Saints, and Polly Farmer delighted the crowd when he took off with the ball and sprinted down the wing at Cardinia Park, bouncing twice and delivering laces out to Sharrock, who only managed a point, which is a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, and an accurate St Kilda fell short of the Cats by three points. In round eight, Dennis Marshall finally made his debut against the Dogs in a low-scoring win. Round ten was carnage and the Cats' two-point win over the Ruse. Following this game, uh, this is the game where Alan Killigrew got into oh, yeah. a bit of a fracas with the players. Yes. Um, I've got a poem I'd like you to read out about this. Oh, please. Love a good poem. All right. An ode to football. I like that. Okay. It seems that a coach got a push in the face, and that's, that's how it started. The blue in the race. Just what really happened, we're still in the dark, but someone came out with a nasty remark. Then players were brawling all over the place. Three cheers for the sports and the blue in the race. (laughs) A little while later, a coach staggered forth and yelled with excitement, I'm bleeding for North. His nose, it was flattened all over his face. Another result of the blue in the race. The tempo grew quicker, the action grew faster, and someone got hit by a hand wrapped in plaster. There's many a man who has fallen from grace for having a lash in the blue in the race. A boxing promoter who witnessed the brawl is trying to sign them for Festival Hall. It seems to be certain they'll keep up the pace. The footwork was good in the blue in the race. A social club member was given a wash. 
His peacemaking efforts were washed down with squash. He went like a rocket returning to base. He wanted no more of the blue in the race. The news that was broadcast on Saturday night by all footy experts, their faces were white. And even the Beatles received second place. It sure made the headlines, the blue in the race. On most of the panels, they very near cried, and poor Tony Charlton, he's so mortified. He thinks their conduct's an utter disgrace, a slur on our country, the blue in the race. Now both sides are resting, the feeling is tense. It looks like the coach has reserved his defence. He ought to get Tony to handle these case. He's got all the facts of the blue in the race. They say the culprits are losing their sting, and if they should try them, they'll probably swing. It's only in soccer a brawl's no disgrace. It's so un-Australian, the blue in the race. The president said it was never quite dull, sir, and, off, and went off to bed with another new ulcer. The pressure is on and I can't stand the pace. I'd like to forget the blue in the race. That is the tale of the coach and the player. A bigger affair than the war in Malaya. So tune to your channel, same time and same place. They'll all keep it up till they're blue in the face. That is so good. Isn't it? I love all, like, a bigger affair than the war in Malaya and poor Tony Charlton. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's yeah. so of the time. Isn't it? It's great. A nice, a nice way to, to, to not, not celebrate, but to talk about. Yeah, so you know, obviously a there's a few, a few facts in there that we're about to get into. A, a, yeah, yeah like or just, the, just the fact that was um, Kilgrew got into a bit of a fight with Rosenau. Yeah. Um, and then Aylett came to his aid and there was a few players, players tangling and suddenly everyone was involved in this big scuffle. Um, punches were thrown, Kilgrew's nose was broken. And, yeah. You know, there was a police yeah, presence as well. Unbelievable. They had to have a... Um, a VFL meeting to work out what happened and an inquiry and everything was clear in the end. I mean, players code. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nothing no, happened, no one saw anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you can imagine that happening now as well. It'd, just, it'd be all over the news. Well, what was the last thing that happened where it was, was it, um, it's this year, Chris Scott got in a bit of a verbal, yeah, right? Yeah, a few times. Yeah, yeah. so it's kind of... And that's a little thing. Yeah, exactly. Imagine, imagine a, a player breaking, breaking a coach's nose. Yeah, the a po yeah. unbelievable. Yeah bring the game into disrepute you'd be, you'd be gone for the season oh you'd be gone for good probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. alright um, so the Cats bested the Hawks in round 9 um, despite only kicking 9 behinds up until half time to offset this the Hawks only kicked 3 for the game uh, let me just double check what those scores were what did I say round 9 yeah the Cats only scored 9 points up till half time Ugh. Well, you're not winning a game doing that, no, are you? No, but the Hawks only scored two goals, four. So they weren't that far behind and the, and the, the um, Cats just turned it on after half-time. Doug Wade and Bill Ryan swapped positions and that was the turning point. And the Cats kicked 10 goals in the second half uh, to take control of the game. Wade injured his knee ligaments, though, and he missed the next seven games. Oh, no. Big loss. Um, but speaking of Doug Wade, round 14, he appeared as the club's runner oh. for the match against the Lions and received a huge cheer any time he was on the ground. Um, also in this game it seemed like the Lions weren't putting up much opposition so the Cats started taking on their own evident when Stuart Lord collared teammate Billy Goggin in the third quarter <laughs> uh, Cats won that game by 55 round 15 was a draw with Essendon uh, round 16 Doug Wade made his return in the game against South Melbourne uh, which they won by 42 points and they had regulation wins over Richmond and then lost the last game to St Kilda but their spot in the finals was, they were lucky to get their spot in the finals. Yeah, um, yeah, they had kind of had it sewn up by that stage. But as we said, it was it wasn't really. No one had it sewn up, did they? No. Well, 
I mean, the Hawks, if they had won by a massive margin, possibly could have overtaken them. Yeah. But they didn't. So. Yeah. That's the cats. So there you go. Um, so who do you reckon was best and fairest Poly, in 64? Polly Farmer. It was Polly Farmer. Who do you reckon was their lead goal kicker? Doug Wade. Doug Wade was with 41. Yeah. So there you go. Essendon in third place. You! With 13 wins, one draw, four losses. But percentage, 130.2. So the Bombers here, coached by uh, Johnny Coleman again and captained by Jack Clark again. Mm. Jack Clark's final year as captain. There you go. So yeah. debutante was Lindsay McGee. There's a lot of McGees playing. Yeah, there's a few. Um, now, here's a, some horrible news. Um, Bluey Shelton suffered an eye injury in the summer. Oh. Um, he was working on a broken tractor, and the guy who was fixing it um, was fixing it, and, and Bluey Shelton was just behind him, and a steel fragment flew and lodged in his eye. Oh, God. Which meant he had to miss the whole season. Yeah, well, that's, that's not surprising. No. Uh, so he'll be back, but yeah, that's... I think he was their runner-up best and fairest last year as well, and yeah, was it was an important player. Yeah, so quite d- yeah. disappointing to, to Big lose. Big loss. Him. Yep. Round one was a high standard game with the Bombers playing uh, against St Kilda, who had beaten them last season at Windy Hill. The Bombers won this game by a goal. Round two, uh, Charlie Payne kicked five for the Dons as they downed the Tigers by an even six goals. Um, but then round three, they were upset by the Kangaroos oh. at home as well, which very rarely happens. Round four, they were sent down to Cardinia Park and held the Cats goalless in the opening quarter on their way to a strong 22-point win over the reigning premiers. That is a huge win. Mm. Uh, round six, they only played one good quarter of football against the Magpies, uh, that being the last quarter, when they trailed by 23 points. It took them 12 minutes into that last quarter for the Bombers to peg back the first goal, but little by little they edged closer as the Pies defended desperately. Jack Clark kicked the winning goal, pouncing on the ball as it spilled from the pack and snapping truly to put the Bombers four points home. That's amazing. So they kicked, like, so it took them until the 12 minute mark, and then they kicked five in, in the next sort of 10, 12 minutes, probably. Yeah. That's un- unbelievable. Yeah, there's a big win. Very good win. Uh, any any time you beat Collingwood is good. Yeah, though, isn't it? You can't uh, go wrong. The round nine victory over Footscray kickstarted the stretch of six wins in a row for the Bombers, uh, with a one goal win over Carlton and regulation wins over Fitzroy, St Kilda, North, and, and Richmond. However, in round eleven they were playing Fitzroy, and Ruckman Brian Sampson left the game in fury. He was dragged because um, he went against Coleman's orders. So Sampson was the Ruckman. He liked to palm the ball down. He'd always been taught to palm the ball down. Yeah. But Coley just wanted them to punch, punch it forward. Punch it forward. Yep. He said, "Never, never punch it towards their goals. Always ours." And he's like, "No, I'm like, I'm a palming Ruckman. This is what I what yeah. I do." And so a few times in the game he palmed it or, or did it the wrong way because that's how he was taught, and he was dragged. Feeling humiliated at halftime, he got dragged. He showered, changed, and left the ground by halftime and officially quit the club. Really? Yep. For a week, he refused to come back, and it took some teammates to kind of talk him round to, you know, maybe coming back. Um, he returned in round 15 and into the, the senior team. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was never any more issues with Coleman after that. Like, he could kind of do what he wanted a bit more yeah. and have some more of that craft. Um, so he came back in round 15 and it was a close, low-scoring game against the Cats. Scores were never far apart all day and the game came down to the closing stages. So Ken Fraser was uh, rushing t- towards goal and was crushed by John Watts as he, as he kicked. The goal went through for a point about four, it was from about 40 metres out. Yeah. Umpire Fisher blew the whistle and said, no, nah, you can have, have a kick again. Fraser looked to Jack Clark. He said, should I take it again? He's like, nah, we better take the point. I don't think you can make kick that far again. Um, and the Bombers salvaged the draw. That's unbelievable. So yeah. they took the point. Yeah, they took the draw instead of the, the potential of losing. Yeah, okay. 
Massive. Yeah, really interesting. Interesting that you they were allowed to make the choice, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. No. But yeah. Um, round 16 was another close game. Sluggish for the first two quarters. Essendon came alive in the second half to halt Melbourne's winning streak at 11. Ken Fraser was the driving force behind his side's comeback, and when he lifted, his teammates followed. After Hassaman gold for Melbourne, they didn't score again, seeing a 9.3 quarter time lead disappear late in the final term. A strong breeze favoured the Bombers, who turned and it turned into a gale in the last term, and the Bombers held the D scoreless to win by two points. Ah, just another t- opportunity for the wind to sort of screw Melbourne over. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> uh, round 17 was a loss to the Pies by three points. In this game, boundary umpire Ron Tanner called the ball out after Barry Capuano had run on to kick the winning goal. Or, oh, sorry, third quarter he kicked a goal. Yep. Potentially match Match turning. changing, yeah. Um, the ball was brought back and thrown in right in front of the Bombers bench. As he was throwing it in, umpire Tanner heard, you jumped up, white maggot. Uh, I wonder who it was. John Coleman. Yeah. Um, hearing this, umpire Tanner reported Coleman for leaving the bench in abusive language because the, um, the coach wasn't supposed to get up from the bench. So there's like some rule put in place. Yeah. Ball was thrown in um, and you heard Coleman say in language warning, you've cost us the fucking game, you white maggot. Uh, so the VFL kind of took action, but in the end left it up to the club to deal out a punishment um, after there was confusion about who actually got up out of the bench. Okay. Because I think one of the assistants, like, oh, they no, I They took the brunt, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he caused confusion. The Bombers lost that game by three points. Um, but yeah, Reynolds, uh, sorry, Coleman, Coleman hates umpires. Yep. This is not the last we've seen of this. No, in this season yeah. either, yeah. Uh, in the last round, the Bombers finished the season in the strongest way possible with a thumping 165-point win over South Melbourne at Windy Hill. Oh, that's a great way to finish. They kicked seven, five, nine, and seven goals a quarter to the Swans' two goals, seven for the game. Ted Fordham kicked eight in a massacre. This is the biggest score over South Melbourne the Bombers ever had and still the Bombers' greatest ever winning margin. Yeah, well, as it should be. Yeah. That's um, massive. So that's taken you into third there as well. Yeah. But, I mean, as I think we've talked about a few times, going, it's all well and good winning big but it doesn't really teach you much no so it doesn't I don't think it sets you in good form it makes you for the lazy. finals yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. you're like well how good are we sort of yeah. sort of set up yeah. yeah so who do you reckon was best and fairest for the Bombers this year uh, definitely not Bluey Shelton no uh, Fraser yes it was Ken Fraser again and lead goal kicker John Burt no Hugh Mitchell with oh, yeah. 32 of course so there you go and the mighty Collingwood with 13 wins, one draw, and four losses. Percentage 133.2. So Collingwood this year are coached by uh, Bob Rose. Yeah, new, new coach yes. coming down from Wangaratta. And a new captain in Ray Gablich. Yes. Uh, so changing up the guards, we know what a upheaval they had last season yes. as well. So it's very impressive they've been able to finish second. Yeah, massive. So like turning that around really quickly. Which disappoints me. <laughs> uh, it, it annoys me that Collingwood can do that. So yeah, quickly, you'd hope that yeah. other clubs languish for years. For years, and years. exactly. Um, Some debutants we have are Robert Longmire, Graham Jenkins, and Dennis Dalton. Round one was a first up success for coach Bob Rose with an easy win over Fitzroy, 28 points. Ray Willett kicking six. But then the Cats showed them up down in Geelong and just gave Bob Rose, you know, a good look at how his team could cope under pressure. Um, the, this saw them in a dogfight against the Dogs, but they came away with a fighting 19-point win. 
In round five, Collingwood's brilliant first quarter against the Blues was the best opening football they'd produced for a long time. The Magpies played to a pattern, one in the air, and were much faster to the ball than their opponents. The Blues once again played without apparent purpose and rallied in the last quarter only when the Magpies eased up. Throughout the game, Collingwood were completely in charge and the Blues were never threatened. Uh, the Magpies by 19. Then they, this followed a wake-up call from Essendon and they learnt from their mistakes and beat North very convincingly in one of their biggest ever wins. Um, so let's have a quick look at what that score was. Um, sorry, Charlie, bear with me. Of course. <laughs> so round seven, they won by 108 points. Yeah, massive. Okay, so they've come back from a loss to Essendon. Yeah, with a thumping with win over thump. North. Uh, this win was born of Ray Gablich's ruck work and the roving of Mick Bone. David Norman kicked six and Terry Waters seven goals seven. Oh. The Pies had five on the board before the Roos even scored and led by 10 goals at half time to run out 108 point winners. Yeah. yeah. Then they came up against the old foe, the Demons. And they lost this game, but only by 10 points, which was enough to show people the Pies the, are back. Yeah, yeah, they're up and about. Yeah. Round 11, they made it tricky for the St. Kilda for the Saints' finals hopes with a strong 14-point win. And after the expected drubbing of Fitzroy, they welcomed Geelong to Victoria Park, who were aiming to take top spot with a win there. Yep. Um, very rugged match. The Pies prevailed through tireless work of their defenders to win by 10 points. Nice. They had regulation wins over the Dogs and Swans, but still sat outside the four. And the game against the Blues loomed as crucial. So while the Blues kicked into the gale, the Blues... So while the Pies kicked into the gale, the Blues kicked six goals five with the Breeze. And then kick the first goal of the second against the wind. So you've got to make the most of, you, of the wind when you've got it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but the Pies then kicked eight straight to take the lead at yep. halftime. Yeah. Then with the wind, the Blues got to 27-point lead again yep. in the third. Unbelievable. Before the Pies came back in the last and snatched the draw with four minutes to play. <sighs> That'd be hard work coming into the last knowing that the wind's against you as well. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a factor as well. Yeah. Like we don't really see that. As much anymore. No, no. Like, I'm trying to think. The la- I remember going down to Tassie to watch North Melbourne a couple of years ago. And, like, that's really the only ground yeah, left okay. where the wind is a, a can be a influence. massive influence, I think. Yeah. That I know, that I can yeah. think of. I mean, of. it becomes very tactical then, doesn't it? Yeah. Like that famous time Trent Cotchin kicked against the wind against Port. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they took care of the Bombers by three points in front of 45,000 people at Victoria Park. And suddenly the mm-hmm. Pies are in the four. Um, thanks to other results uh, in the final game of the season they made sure of a final spot by taking control in the second half to secure a second spot on the ladder uh, by beating North Melbourne by 31 only 31 points this time at Arden Street so they won seven of their last eight games drawing the other um, what a run into the finals finals were heading back to finals with confidence love that so best and fairest Gablich Tuddenham Again, yeah, okay. yeah. I would have thought, thought Gublich, from what you were saying, sounded pretty good. And lead goal kicker? Norman? Terry Waters. Terry Waters, yeah. With 43. Good. Not a, not a bad result. No. And finally, the Mighty Ds with 14 wins, 4 losses, percentage 138.1. So, there we go. Top of the ladder. Coached again by Norm Smith. And captain by Barass in his last year. Indeed. As um, captain. So a lot of our information comes from this book called The Last Hurrah. Brand new. Brand new by Adam Wilcock. Uh, all about Melbourne's 1964 season. Um, so I've had a good read of this. Charlie, you're about to have a read of yes, it. Yes, I cannot wait. Um, celebrating past premiership. It's Your it, last premiership. I, yeah, I mean, it, the fact that it's called The Last Hurrah is very depressing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but, um, you know. So Norm Smith came out pre-season and said, the prospects of 1964 look rosy. Young players are bound to improve and we have recruited well. 
Uh, preseason, John Lord injured his shoulder water skiing, which apparently he was doing to rehabilitate it. <laughs> How is water skiing good for your shoulder? Uh, Barassi would also miss the first game, who was serving the final match of his four-game suspension oh, from, from 63. Year, yeah. And they lost to Geelong in round one at the G. Um, and Neil Crompton finished that game on a stretcher, courtesy of a collision with Cat Tony Polinelli. Very, very different from how he'll finish the season. Yeah. Uh, the start to, and there's, I'm going to say, there's a lot of stuff to talk about with Melbourne, so this might be a little bit longer. I'm happy just with to, that. That's enjoy. okay. That's okay. Uh, to start round two against North, to commemorate Anzac Day, players stood in a V before the bounce, and the crowd was silent between the time the umpire placed the ball on the ground and picked it up. With the use of the strong breeze, Melbourne jumped to a four goal lead at quarter time, but conceded six in the second to go in behind. North couldn't repeat the success of the second quarter, having plenty of opportunities, but booting a wasteful one goal, eight to one goal, to shave just eight points off the three-quarter time lead. Yeah. With Barassi and Hassaman and Bernie Massey all recovering from a midweek bout of the flu, the Demons held on to open their account for 64. Nice. Then round three, the Ds dropped some players, including Bernie Va- Barry Vag and Don Williams, and the team responded with a consolidating 46-point win over um, Carlton. The defenders holding Carlton to just four goals for the whole game. And I like, I like that Norm Smith's dropping a few players here just to send a bit of a message. Absolutely. Round five, they beat Essendon. Uh, they kicked five goals, seven in the final quarter to really stamp their authority on the game. Round six was a thriller at the G. Scores were close all day against the Hawks. And it was a Hawks defense that kept them in the game. The Demons attacked repeatedly in the last quarter before Graham Jacobs finally goaled in the 13th minute to extend the margin to 10. But it was such a hard-fought game, the Hawks couldn't conjure up two scores to win. They goaled with a minute left but ran out of time. Uh, when Tassie Johnson marked in defence on the siren. The Ds won by 10. In this game, Norman Checker Hughes got into a bit of a bickering argument again. Okay. So Checker is back on the bench. You're back on the bench, yep. Um, Checker suggested that 17-year-old Maury Bartlett might get a run. And Norman's reply was, Checker, if you're going to keep harping on about it, you can go inside. <laughs> so Hughes did. He took himself off inside. But after the game, they, you know, all was forgiven. Um... Round eight, so as, as Barassi was leading the team out of the race for round eight against the Dogs, he slipped and strained his groin. Didn't seem to affect his play. Kicked three goals as the Ds won by seven, but this groin injury would annoy him for weeks. Yeah. Round eight, with normal way on state duties, Ron Barassi had his first taste of coaching. Ah. Making a better impression with his first game as a coach than he did as a player. This was evident with the club kicking 10 goals in the third quarter alone. Although the Lions kicked five in the last to reduce the final margin to 67 points. It's a pretty convincing win. Yeah, it's and, a good and, win. You know, it's a good, good way to have your first coaching gig. Absolutely. Yeah. They beat the Pies in a bit of a letdown of a match. We said 10 point, 10 point win, but yeah. interrupted by weather. In around 10, Norm achieved something he'd never done as a coach. What? He had a triple digit win. Hey, okay. He's beat uh, a Richmond team coached by Len Smith. Ah, yes. By 113 points. They're, so, the, yeah. It's the first win he's ever had by more than 100 points. Against his brother. Yeah. There you go. Brassy, Jacobs and Townsend kicked four each. Following this win, Brian Dixon also learned of his victory in the state elections as a Liberal member for the seat of St Kilda. Unbelievable, isn't it? At the age of 28, he was the youngest member for the lower house. That is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, around this time, there was rumours of Carlton wooing Brassy as well. So that was starting to filter through. Oh, Okay. Uh, round 12, the Demons' defence held firm against Geelong, stopping them from kicking into the wind all match. The Demons kicked away in the last. Two goals to Barassi helped, and the Ds were back on top of the ladder for the first time since round 6, 1962. Where we belong, I say. Yep. <laughs> round 13 at the MCG against North. The Demons were in command all day. Towner with four. First game of Frank Davis came off the bench and kicked the goal with his first kick in the quarter. 
it would take him 150 games to kick his second goal. Really? Yeah. Good little bookend. Demons, okay. Demons by 72 points there. Uh, following the round 15 win over St Kilda, Norm Smith landed in hot water after the game, suggesting in a radio interview that umpire Don Blue had been subconsciously biased towards the uh, Saints. Umpire Blue was incensed by the comments and demanded an apology. And at the time, the controversy was quickly forgotten when Smith uh, apologised. Um, Blue sued both the coach and the radio station 3OW and this will come into you know this will this will come back to haunt uh, in 65 as yes, well. Yes, yeah. So an off the cuff comment is Oh sorry, Smith refused to apologize, so that's why Blue sued. Yeah, I was going to say it didn't didn't sound like like that's something Norm would do to just apologize. Yeah. Uh, round 16 was Ron Barassi's 200th game. He got a standing ovation from the crowd before the the, the Bombers match, but the Bombers were able to uh, take control of this game beating a sluggish Melbourne by only 2 points. Yeah. Now, round 17 was a really important game against Hawthorne. The winner was guaranteed a final spot, while the loser would face the prospect of missing finals. First half was a close slog when Hawthorne made their move in the third quarter. They kicked three goals. Um, John Peck kicked, finished with six for the Hawks, and the Ds needed to come back in the last quarter. They were trailing. Yeah. They kicked three goals, but still trailed by two points with 90 seconds to play. As the clock wound down, Neil Crompton took a strong defensive mark and sent the ball forward. In what would be the winning transition, Burke and Young contested a mark and the ball spilled out. Townsend, Gavin from the Hawks, tap and sent the ball into the D's forward line. And from another throw-in, the ball dropped into the path of Hassaman on the the boundary, who screwed a right footer through uh, from the boundary. We've just watched that footage and geez, wasn't it great. The D's hung on to win just and secure another finals berth, their 11th in a row. Uh, Hassaman says, has, has this to say The following week we were playing Footscray at Footscray Which wasn't a very happy hunting ground for, for Melbourne It was in the dying minutes of the last quarter When Melbourne struggled all day and We were behind And I was probably fortunate enough to get the ball On the half forward flank at the Linton Crescent side And in pretty heavy traffic kick a goal That won the match for Melbourne I guess it was one of the games I was renowned for being in the right spot at the right time and kicking what was always considered a fluke goal. <laughs> but from the moment it left my boot, I was I quite confident it, it was going never going to miss. Yeah. And the Ds hang on, hung on. There was a bit of time left after that. Yeah, there was still like two and a half minutes yeah, to go, though, wasn't there? Like in the video footage, you see the crowd kind of spilling on because they think the siren's gone. Yeah. But no, there's a bit two more minutes to play and yeah. they, they held on. And they shut it down. Uh, and luckily, because the Ds lost the final round match to the Doggies. So um, we really needed that. Yeah. And as we have spoken about, if results were changed, they would, would have missed finals. finals exactly. Eight, eight point swing. Yeah. So lost their final game, but the D's into their 11th straight finals series. Not bad. Not bad. Um, so that's the demon. That's a, that's a long. That's the D's. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, the book, you know, as you just mentioned, the book's called The Last Hurrah, and it really is like the last push from this. Side, that yeah. 58, 59, 60, you know, yeah. team of, you know, really yep. getting it done. Yep. Just like kind of 40, like similar to 48 in Norm, that one that we... The outlier. The outlier. Yeah, all the, the, all the pies in 35, 36. Yep. Yeah, and no. then getting it done over the Bombers. Yep. <laughs> I like how you work that in there. <laughs> Had to do it. Um, so best and fairest winner? Best and fairest winner, who do you reckon? Don Williams. Barass. Okay. Barass. And Johnny Townsend, Downer. our lead goal to kicker with 35. Sweet. It's time to hear about the Brownlow. It is. Let's hear about the Brownlow medal. The Brownlow down low with Moss. 
The winner this year won so easily, eight votes clear of the equal silver medalists who each finished with 19 votes. Gordon Collins from Carlton had a short but striking career, winning this most auspicious of medals in his third season. He was only to play 95 games as injury and illness ended his career at age 26. Collins debuted in 1961 from Hillsville. Although his skills tapered off a bit at the end of the 1963 season, but it turns out all Collins needed was an eye check and a change of positions. And boy, did he fly in 1964. With his new fitted contact lenses and a magical move from centre-half forward to defence, Colin not only won the Brownlow, but also his club's best and fairest and a spot in the Victorian team. As far as he knows, Collins was the only player to wear contact lenses at the time, apart from maybe Hawthorne's Ian Law, who, who he said had big bulky ones. Collins knew he needed to have his eyes checked in the 1963 season when he was playing far better during wet games because the ball wasn't travelling so far or fast. Collins' main skills were his ability to play in any position, tall or small. He also said that he had good, good ball handling skills and good anticipation of the play. He polled his 27 votes from 11 games out of the 17 games he played in 1964. The equal runners-up were Essendon's Ken Fraser and Hawthorne's Phil Hay. Now, interestingly, um, the Bunton medal was won by Ken Fraser this year. So not, ah. uh, not Gordon Collis. Yeah. So one of the few times that differs from the actual Brownlow medal winner. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Mm. So that was in, that's interesting. It could have, could have gone another way for Collis if that uh, charge had been upheld. It could have, yeah, absolutely. Which this gets us to finals now. Yes. Uh, the first semi-final was Essendon versus Geelong at the MCG in front of 92,231. Big finals crowds. I love it. Bombers coming off that massive win as well. Uh, yeah. So came in as the overwhelming favourite. Doug Wade was back in for the Cats though, which is a big in. Yeah, huge. Bombers started well and led early with accurate kicking, but the Cats started to win in the air and outpaced the Bombers around the ground and took a nine-point lead into halftime. It rained at halftime, but this didn't so much slow scores down as it... Sorry as it did anger players as two brawls erupted in the quarter. Uh, the, second, the second brawl happened in front of the members' stand and involved both coaches' boxes as well. So what happened was as Geelong's John Devine slipped, uh, Ken Fraser and Graham Bristle of Essendon both landed on top of him and there was a melee. Coleman rushed in from the bench to grapple with Paul Venara of, Col- of Geelong and the Bombers committee rose to try and uh, pull him back towards the bench and keep him out of the fray. Geelong's bench was also cleared. Um, but nothing kind of came of this. There was a few reports made later on in the game. The Cats won. The Cats steadied after this to win by 19 points. Best for them were Lord Marshall, Farmer Goggin, and Kloster. Uh, during the week, umpire Brophy charged Coleman with misconduct, and he received a severe reprimand from the VFL. So there you go. So the VFL the first time were like, "Oh, we'll just leave it in the hands of the club," and yeah. now they're like, yeah. "No, no, you yeah. can't do that again." Yeah. So yeah, the the. Overwhelming favourite bombers bombed out there by 19 points, which is interesting, isn't? It? As we said, like leading into leading into a final series with a hundred point win, just like happened to Geelong a couple, you know, a couple, a couple of years, years ago, yeah. ago, isn't necessarily your best your best sort of training. No, uh, it gets us to the second semi final the next Saturday in front of 93,010 people at the MCG. Melbourne took on Collingwood. In the lead up, the Pies practiced a play on strategy to catch the D's out. Yeah, backfired as uh, one of their players, Ted Porter, did his groin. 
wasn't able to play. Remembering the players only had seven players left with finals experience after three years of missing. So they yes. had a big turnover. Collingwood had the early running, leading two goals, two to no score in the first quarter before the Dees scored. Um, and after Brian Keneally kicked two goals to put Melbourne in front, they were never ahead of the game. The Age described the performance as having stripped Collingwood of its prestige and left it with practically no confidence. <laughs> oh, God. Bob Rose tried to make some positional combat combative changes um, but, didn't. but nothing could really he couldn't do anything the D's lead was out to five goals at half time but wary of giving the Magpies any oxygen for a comeback Melbourne came out of the sheds looking to put the game away and yep. everything they did went right including one passage of play where Graham Jacobs Barry Vag, John Townsend and Barry Burke flashed around the members wing with a series of unchallenged handballs uh, without an opponent getting close before Vag finished the good work with a goal Six goals to two in the third quarter extended the gap to 59 points and Melbourne was home. They added another five goals to one in the last quarter, the final margin being 89 points. Best were Townsend, Massey and Dixon. Final score of 19-20-134 to six goals, 9-45. Oh, massive. Which means Collingwood now take on Geelong in the preliminary final at the MCG. Um, very similar to 58 as well where Collingwood absolutely smashed... Uh, Melbourne smashed Collingwood. Yes. Um but we know what happened then as well. Yeah. So in front of 87,091, Collingwood were quiet and focused pre-game, keen to make up for the embarrassment of the previous week. And they were able to put tremendous pressure on the Cats and the ruck duel between Polly Farmer and Ray Gablich was really a rematch from 1961 when they were uh, Western Australian opponents playing for West and East Perth, respectively. Cats led by a goal at half-time and then the rain set in. The lead changed six times as the Pies edged to an eight-point lead at three-quarter time and the Cats threw everything at the Pies in the final quarter. Wade t- took four big grabs and missed four opportunities to put the Cats oh. in front. The Pies through Gablich, Rose, Ricky Watt and Max Urquhart held on for a strong four-point win. Um, Massive. Des- despite Polly Farmer absolutely dominating this game and being unanimously the best player on the ground. Yeah, but just couldn't, yeah. So final scores, Collingwood, seven goals, 6.48 to Geelong, five goals, 14. 44. Oh, geez, that'd kill you. Mm, and I would have liked to see a Geelong Melbourne grand final. Yeah. I mean, as much as Melbourne and Collingwood seem to be drawn to each other, a bit of a change. I mean, I'd be, I'd be sick of it as a casual fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would, wouldn't you? Yeah. But uh, that sounds like a tough game. Mm. Which gets us to the grand final. The grandest of finals. 19th of September, in front of 102,471 at the MCG. Uh, let's boot up that old Wayback when machine and have a chat to Ronald Dale Barassi to see how the game went. Fantastic. A bounce of the ball in the centre of the ground. It's not a good bounce. The sign coming out towards the centre wing. Collingwood gained possession. Kick it across towards the centre half forward position. Norman comes in. The ball goes past him. Up towards the forward pocket position. Opportunity here. Picked up here in the forward pocket position for Collingwood by Graham. He has a left foot shot at goal and puts the ball out of play. Ron, welcome. Uh, six-time Premiership player. Uh, thanks for having me, lads. So, mate, another interesting and close season. How did you see it? Yeah, look, we were lucky to finish on top. Uh, it all came down to that win against Hawthorne at Glenferry Oval. And I'll tell you what, if Hassan Man snap had missed, we would have missed the four. That's how bloody tight it was. Unbelievable, wasn't it? Uh, so now, we, before we get to the finals, we want to go back 
Uh, there are some rumours that you might be leaving the D's to coach elsewhere. Uh, Richmond and Carlton are p- apparently touted as possible destinations. Can you give us any comment on this? Can you tell me it's not true, Ron? Yeah, um, look, it, it's true I do want to coach one day. Uh, at the moment, I want to enjoy today's win. Uh, but following the celebrations, I'll sit down and talk to Norm and others and start having a serious think about the future and, and what's best for my football career going forward. But of, that's, that's all I want to say on that. Of course, of course, mate. Thank you for sharing that much with us. Uh, and good luck with anything that comes in the future. Now, Ron, you've come into today's game hot off a huge win against Collingwood. How much confidence does that give you, beating an old foe like Collingwood? Uh, Look, honestly, not much. You you rarely learn much about a team in those big wins. Uh, We didn't come into today's game expecting a result similar to the semi-final. We knew it was going to be a hard uh, slog of a match. Yes, yep. So, were you expecting Collingwood to win through and having to meet them again today? Yeah, look, I think we did. Uh, these two teams just seem to have an unending rivalry and we always seem to be drawn together in these big games. Yeah, but you had confidence in winning today's game? Oh, look, I did. Uh, I still thought we would win, just not by as much. Uh, look, I predicted a four to five goal win for us in the paper. Yep. Oh, and now, so during the week it seemed that it would be a bit of a wet game, but waking up today, it's a perfect uh, sunny September day, uh, absolutely perfect for the, yeah, day, for the game. I tell you what, there. the crowd knew it too. Uh, what a sight it was coming to the ground today, 100 and, 100 and something thousand people. Yeah, Just huge amazing. crowd. Yeah, fantastic. Now tell us a bit about what Norm said to you guys pre-game. Uh, look, it was a final last uh, last eight-minute address. He took us into his little room he'd, he'd made for us. Uh, and he talked about this being the most important day of our lives. History was going to judge us on today, and the side with the most fierce desire to get the ball first was going to win the premiership. Now, did he remind you much about 58? Oh, my word, he did. Bloody oath. Uh, he reminded us about how complacency destroyed us in 58. And look, even though there's only a few of us left from that game, North wasn't going to let us or the team forget about that. Uh, we've been heavy favourites that year and, and we've been jumped. So for today's game, we knew it wasn't going to be easy. Uh, it's definitely as easy as the semi-final and we knew Collingwood would bring the heat today. Absolutely. Now, um... Today was your eighth grand final that you've played in, uh, Ron. Did it, does it get any easier to play in these big games? No, absolutely not. It's probably one of the worst players on the bloody field today, uh, if I'm <laughs> honest. I, look, I really let the team down. Well, how did Norm try and lift you? Uh, yeah, in that second quarter, he sent the runner to me, knowing sometimes I can react quite violently and take things out in the opposition. Uh, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't firing. Maybe I was a bit leg-weary. Well, it's been, a, it's been a big season for you, mate. So uh, you, you boys won the toss and kicked with the breeze, even though it was only slight. Uh, was it a nervous start? Yeah, look, both teams were bloody nervous all day, actually. Uh, it was just a scrappy opening half. And uh, the Collingwood fullback Potter putting it into play, building it out towards the half-back flank. Henderson flies for the mark. The ball comes behind this time. Knocked on further by Collingwood towards the centre wing position. Leading in the race for the ball, though. Melbourne get hold of it. Ball is picked up for them by Davis. He puts his boot to it and swings it out of play over between the centre wing and Melbourne's half-forward flank. <coughs> Melbourne a goal in front. 6-9-45 to Collingwood. 5-9-39. And both teams uh, kicked a couple of goals early, but then the majors seemed to dry up. Uh, yeah, it became a bit of an arm wrestle out there. I think that the point on, from that point on, there were 12 consecutive points scored. A bit frustrating. Yeah, but then you, uh, your boys seemed to take control. Yeah, look, after battling so hard for the breakthrough, we kicked two goals uh, uh, in, that, in that second quarter. And things seemed to settle down, um, but that kind of provided a bit of a spark for the Pies, and, and they pulled on three goals to take the lead by half time. 
Now, you talked about Norm firing your boys up before the game. What did he have to say at halftime? Yeah, look, he was in the depths of despair at that point. Um, I won't repeat every harsh <laughs> word he had with us, but uh, look, he knew we had a fight in their hands and he really had a go at our pride and the way we were playing and, and wanted to really want us to lift. And it seemed like it worked and that you guys ran away in the early parts of the third. Is that how you were feeling out there on the field? Yeah, look, an early goal in the third settled us nicely. Um, then, like the first quarter of the game, degenerated into a tense struggle. Uh, there were no more goals kicked until late when young Barry Burke goaled on the run and we took an 11-point lead into that final break. And, look, we were confident. Uh, but we, you don't let the bloody magpies jump you. We knew they'd come hard. No, yeah. And you, you had uh, a lead of just under a couple of uh, majors at three-quarter time. Now, how, give us a feeling about that last quarter. How, how was it out there? It looked epic from our perspective. Uh, look, I'll I tell you this. I've known pressure in football before, but nothing like today's last quarter. Now, three behinds in a row to open up that last quarter. It gave you the ex- extent of that lead to 14 points, and it looked like only a matter of time before the Ds put that match beyond doubt. Uh, but it was the Pies, though, who grabbed that first goal since the second term, five minutes in. Yeah, it was the spark they needed, and, and bloody Ray Gablich, Gabbo, he did what good captains do, and he started to lead by example. Yeah. And now, speaking of Gablich, with minutes to play, that uh, yeah, he... he but he found himself free in the forward line and raced forward with the ball. Boots the ball forward, it goes straight to uh, Emsel. He couldn't hold the ball. In come Collingwood, pick it up, get it across the waters, and away go the Magpies into attack again. In ships Crompton, he overruns the ball, makes one of the few mistakes. There Collingwood through Tudner, picking up the ball, putting it down to Gablick. Gablick is running into an open goal. There's no one within Dewey, a straight kick, and he'll put it through. And Collingwood... What were your thoughts as you saw him just run into that empty in, empty uh, goal, goal oh, square? Oh, my heart was in my mouth, oh, hoping like hell he'd drop or fumble the ball at every bounce. He but, almost did. Yeah, but credit to him, he regained control of every wobbly bounce and he, he ran into an open goal square and he kicked what I guess everyone at the ground thought was a match winner. Yeah, well, he obviously didn't know um, how much time there was to go, but it seems like everyone was suddenly uh, scrambling and Hassa, Hassa took a mark well within distance. Yeah, and he bloody shanked it, didn't he? Uh, it took Look, he, he took probably more time than he usually does to kick the ball and, and he didn't use his usual routine. I think he just, yeah, he just, he just mistimed his kick and, and thought he'd lost the game for us. Oh, like, thank goodness Neil Crompton can kick straight. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that goal. So, uh, Brian, Brian Dixon had the ball on the wing and kicked long to the contest and you and Kevin Rose went up for the ball. Yeah, but I couldn't hold down the mark. Luckily, Kevin didn't either. The ball spilled out to Crompton. and Putting the ball into play, a nice drop kick too, a chance for Melbourne through Dixon to mark the ball. Was allowed to take it unopposed. Not good play there by Collingwood. Back goes Dixon, there's his kick. Bring the ball right up in front of goal. They fly for it. Barassi goes high, couldn't hold it. Crompton picks up the ball, slams it, goal, and puts it through. And Melbourne hit the front. And then what? And then Neil grabs it, and what happens? And it felt like I was watching the play in slow motion. As that ball floated through the air, it seemed like it took forever to go through. But it did. It bloody did, and I tell you what, it was the sweetest, truest, most glorious kick of the whole darn season. <laughs> it would have been a tragedy if we'd lost after holding a lead for about 80% of the game and missing goals with easy shots. I'd have felt like cutting my throat. 
it's not too happy. Look, I'm not too happy now, but buddy, thank heavens it's all over and ended the right way. Yeah, look, but there was still a bit of time to go, and you guys had to defend like hell for the last few minutes of the game. Yeah, we did, and I'll tell you what, uh, and Norm joked about this after the game, Barry Burke, our full forward, was sent down back to defend, and he took some game-saving marks. Uh, so Norm's actually been saying, you know, back when kicked the winning goal, but a forward took the defensive game-saving marks. Interesting changing it around. Now, Norm reacted with a surprising emotion uh, on the side, a bit of surprising emotion on the side. Yeah, look, I didn't catch it all, but he was jumping up and down with our uh, old Checker Hughes celebrating the, the victory. It was really? just an outpouring of emotion, which a little bit unusual for the public to see with, uh, with old Norm. Absolutely. He usually keeps it all uh, close to the chest. Yeah. Now, tell me, obviously, you've been a part of quite a few premierships now, Ron. How does this one compare to the, to the other ones you've been part of? Yeah, look, we were nowhere near as formidable a side as we've been in the past. I think we won today's flag largely because of Norm's coaching, which was probably worth a few extra players and an extra goal or so to us. Mm. And now, tell me, you've talked about your game. Weren't, weren't that happy with it. But who was best on ground out there for oh, the days today? Brian Dixon, far and wide, acclaimed the best on ground. Tireless on the wing all day. And look, without his, his mark and kicking those last frantic minutes, we may not have won today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for talking to us. And congratulations again. Uh, all the best with anything that happens in the future. And from a, from a D supporter, I've got to say, thanks for everything you've done for us, mate. Yeah, thanks, mate. No worries. Uh, so the final scores in that game, Melbourne 8 goals, 16-64 to Collingwood 8 goals, 12-60. Melbourne by four points. In 64 in 64 to take out the flag. Yeah, in a very inaccurate game. Yeah. Um, goals for Melbourne, Townsend with three, Lord two, Burke, Crompton and Mann with one. For Collingwood, Gablich with those two uh, goals, captain's goals in the last quarter. Waters two, Bone, Dalton, Steer and Tuddenham with one each. Best for Melbourne were Frank Adams, Brian Dixon, Tassie Johnson, Graham Wise, Hassaman, Don Williams, Neil Crompton and Graham Jacobs. Yeah. And I'd like to point out this is Collingwood's second grand final loss since their last premiership. And I'll, <laughs> I'll continue to counter. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Um, discussion point for you though, Charlie. Yeah. This is the D's sixth premiership in 10 years. Yeah. They won't make finals again until 87. But when we talk about dynasties, this is a dynasty. 100%. You think of... So the... Di- yeah, you think of the dynasties. We've got Collingwood. I, I think dynasty is thrown around too easily these days and, and Richmond being labelled a dynasty I disagree with yeah I three I, premierships in four years is, is amazing but it's not a dynasty no it's got to it's got to be longer lasting yeah. than that doesn't it how long do you think uh, I think it's got to be eight, seven, eight years at least at least yeah I, like I, I would say Geelong like the Geelong team of 07 is probably a bit of a dynasty in terms of they, how, so seven, nine, eleven. So three premierships in five years. Three premierships in five years, but they were a dominant side throughout that time. Like they were ones yeah, to come they, up against. And they're in the grand final in 08. Yeah. Okay. Um, Hawthorne in the eighties was definitely dominant. hundred percent. Because they played eight grand finals in a row. Yeah. You've got. You think of. Uh, I mean, you got Essendon in the fifties as well. Forties. Forties and, yeah. and yeah. Yep. Four premierships in. And made ten years, and, and made, made the grand final basically almost every year. Yeah. Almost every year, dynasty. Collingwood's dynasty, pretty much from twenty four or twenty five, from twenty five to thirty six, where they yeah. played every single grand, almost every grand final, won six flags. Yeah, were always there dynasty. It's always yep. Even Carlton, I'd probably say from 06 to yeah. twenty to nineteen fifteen, where they won five flags. Yep. But I don't. I don't think even Hawthorne. I don't think they were a dynasty. 
I think 08 was an outlier in the premiership they didn't expect to win. That was the end of an era no, of players, a, I think. Oh, Don't you think? Like really. it was, I mean, that was all, they, they were very young and won that flag unexpectedly. But you, the, 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 the backbone of that team was your... Um, your older guys like you, Stu, you know, your Stewie Jews and and they were nurse, I, Crawfords they were and mercenaries stuff. Mercenaries bought in. Yeah. Stewie Jew was. I I don't think because they hadn't had success since 1991. So That's true. Think. Yeah, yeah. I I agree, I agree though that the 08 isn't part of their run. Yeah, I think. They were very dominant for 13, 14, 15. Yeah. Annoyingly so, but I don't think that's a dynasty. But it's a, a same. You'd say the same with Brisbane then as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and Brisbane were very flush in the pan where you know I think 99 they made finals 2000 they bombed out 1, 2, 3 they won flags and then 4 they four, lost 4 they made the grand final Yeah. if they'd won that maybe we could start talking dynasty but yeah. then they, they crashed out of finals and yeah. made finals for years Yeah. so yeah probably wouldn't include them as dynasty it's interesting to think like whether we've got to change our def- like whether the definition of a dynasty has changed though because of the draft system yeah. because of the way that it runs basically to stay up for four, for four years is that is as impressive as staying up for twice that twice mm. that long in the older in the older time where you were where there was different sort of styles of recruiting and things yeah. like that where you had more ability to stay up. I don't know. And you think it's about like um, Ron Barassi mentioned it in that interview that you know the, probably the reason they got up was the coaching of, of Norm Smith. Yeah, like just that extra getting that extra bit of juice out of those players yeah they weren't a great side that year no Probably and the it's, the, it's the same thing that it's the same thing that we talk about now consistency off the field yeah and having good structures and stuff in place is what makes great teams yeah isn't it really yep. and that's why Melbourne like, will fall off from this point on yeah yeah, yeah well, not we'll having talk, that harmony across all we'll talk about uh, 65 Ooh. yeah anyway um so in other results, we also had the under-19s Melbourne beat Collingwood in a good omen. Uh, Geelong won the reserves and Collingwood won the McClellan Trophy. Um, so let's get to some retirees. Not many this year, actually. So we've got Graham Campbell of Fitzroy, 151 games, 154 goals. Fred Wooler, 132 games, 225 goals. Premiership captain. Yeah. Fearless Fred. Stuart Lord. 74 games, 13 goals, one flag. Brian Walsh of St Kilda, 131 games. Hugh McLaughlin of South Melbourne, 116 games, five goals. Frank Adams, Frank Bluey Adams, 164 games, 180 goals, just a lazy six flags. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? And Alan Aylett of North Melbourne, 220 games, 311 goals. Um, so let's do a wrap-up of the season. Leading goals, uh, we've got John Peck, Kicking the most goals, 68 yes. for Hawthorne. Yeah. Brownlow medalist. And Brownlow medalist was uh, um, Greg Collis. Gordon Collis. Gordon Collis, yep. sorry. Uh, premiership team. The Mighty Days. Thank you for letting me say that for the last time. <laughs> uh, highest score was Essendon's, 28 goals, 16,184. Uh, would you like a premiership tally from 1964? I would love one. All right, we've got Collingwood with 13, Melbourne with 12. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be stuck on. Yes. Um, Essendon with 11, Carlton 8, Fitzroy 8, Geelong 6, Richmond 5, South Melbourne 3, Hawthorne 1, Footscray 1. And I mean, it's interesting comparing Melbourne and Hawthorne there because Hawthorne are now ahead of Melbourne with flags. They're on 13. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that unbelievable? Mm. In that time. Um, that gets us to the end of another episode. 
Yeah. 64. 64, done and dusted. Um, it's good to have you on the show for the last, you know. I know. I'll be, I'll be back. We'll, we'll miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back for 87. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just angry. Just angry from here on out. No, you know, it's all, it's all part of it. Yeah. It's what oh, makes the good time yeah, so good. It does. It does. It really You've does. You've got to have it. All right, well, let's hand things over to Joey to hear about what was happening around the state. Yes, fantastic. And uh, again, please give us a like, give us a review uh, if you're enjoying if you're enjoying it, and especially, uh, you know, as we've said, listening to the listening to the olden times and uh, and getting a, a grasp, a, a sort of feel for the history of your own club is yeah. always nice. And, and having a bit more understanding about the names that you hear so much of, what who they actually were and what they did, yeah. is pretty good, pretty yeah. cool. So I hope you guys are enjoying it out there. And uh, until sixty-five, hooroo. Nice. Um, so let's just. Welcome back to Around the Ground. Let's get sixty-four underway. As usual, we are starting for VFA. Some big news coming out of the association with the VFA team Moravan being disband from the competition. But as we know, um, Romans had two strong years, 60, with 62 losing to Sandy by a point in the grand final, and then beating them in 63. Before we explain the details, let's get our heads around the background which resulted in this. In the last few years, VFL clubs were very dissatisfied with their current grounds, whether that be the size of the grounds, such as Hawthorne and Glen Ferry, or the leasing arrangements like Fitzroy and Brunswick Street Oval. And the association grounds are very enticing because of their locations in growth corridors and their modern arrangements and facilities. As you can imagine, the association didn't want this or their clubs amalgamating or sharing grounds or facilities with league clubs. In their eyes, they want to be completely independent from the VFL. And in recent years, there were strong murmurs of St Kilda trying to move in with Brighton at Alstonwick Park in 59 and Fitzroy moving in with Preston at their footy ground in 62. Both were unsuccessful. Now to October 63, two clubs faced allegations of attempting to amalgamate with league clubs, first being October 15, after the leagues newly promoted promoted to Division 1 and winning, after winning Division 2, Preston had been accused of attempting to make dealings with Fitzroy, but after a thorough investigation, the association had found Fitzroy had only communicated with Preston City Council. Consequently, the association saw Preston Footy Club had done no wrong and weren't disloyal. On October 29, the association investigated Moorabbin, engaging the discussions with two league clubs, firstly Fitzroy, which was, which was later turned down, followed by Fitzroy to promote to potentially for a move to amalgamate. It was found that Moorabbin had been acting against the interests of the association and required a two votes, two-thirds vote to disband them from the competition. This was not achieved and consequently both teams were allowed to participate in that year's season. After St Kilda had confirmed that they had made an agreement with Moorabbin City Council to move its base to Moorabbin, and Moorabbin were kept out of the secret negotiations between St Kilda and the council, the footy club had held an extraordinary meeting late March and at the meeting determined that it was 
its official position was to support the council and its efforts to attract league football to the district and seek amalgamation with, with the Saints. As a result, in early May, or in early April, sorry, VFA succeeded in getting a two-thirds vote in expelling Morabin from Division One and filling it at less than three weeks' notice by six nineteen sixty-three Division Two runner-up Waverley, and the size of, the, of Division Two being reduced to eight teams. The JJ listed medalist was won by Oakley captain coach. Bill Jones, who polled 32 votes. Leading goal kicker was Alan Clark from Brunswick, who kicked 65 goals during the season. And Port Melbourne beat ladder leaders Williamstown by six goals for their eighth flag. In Division 2, the BNF was won by Sean Crosby uh, from Sunshine, who polled 43 votes. Leading goal kicker was division, in Division 2 was Camberwell's Ron O'Neill. And Geelong West uh, won their first flag, uh, over, uh, beating Sandring, uh, beating Sunshine by 21 points, and replacing 10th placed Preston in Division One. In the Vaffa, Melbourne High School Old Boys won. Sorry, Melbourne High School Old Boys. Uh, John Nelson won the JN Woodrow Medal with 18 votes. Old Melbourneians I.A. Wilson won the league goal kicking with 44 goals. And winning three in a row, Old Paradians beat Old Xavier's by four points. In the Sandfall, uh, Port Adelaide captain Jeff Motley won the McGarry medal with 26 votes. Leading goal kicker was Sturt's Ross Storley with 70 goals. Port Adelaide won their eleventh and most re- sorry South Adelaide won their eleventh and most recent flag by beating Adelaide's Port by twenty seven points. In the waffle, big name Barry Cable won his first Sandover medal for Perth with twenty three votes. We welcome back Subiaco's Austin Robertson to the Bernie ne- Bernie Naylor medal tally, winning his second with ninety four goals plus an additional two in finals. Claremont won their fourth flag, coming from fourth to beat ladder leaders East Frio by four points. East Frio defender Norm Rogers became the fourth player to win the Simpson medal from a losing side. Across the straight in the TFL, Sandy Bay recouped from last year's grand final loss uh, with a 12-point win over New Norfolk and won their third flag. And in the Northern Territory Footy League in the top end, the 64-65 season saw Nightcliff come out and win their third flag, beating Darwin by 39 points. St. Mary's Cliff Lou Fats has won the Nichols medal a year after his brother Bernie collects the medal. Thank you and have a great day. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.